Thank you, Pastor Kyle. I had asked this morning, you take your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. We'll be in John chapter 9 today. While you're turning there, I wanted to inform you of a special birthday today. Today is Todd Barrett's birthday. I don't know how old he is, but um, I, am, I just want to say that I'm so thankful for Todd. He's, he's a silent servant around here, does so much for our church, and uh, he is right now up in junior church teaching the missionary story, and I wish you all could see the kids as they listen to Todd, as he teaches his missionary story each week. He doesn't have fantastic job, and he loves it, loves those children, and uh, I know he's always waiting and uh, patiently waiting as, as folks are mingling and fellowshipping after service, and he always locks up and is faithful um, in what he does, and so I'm, I'm thankful for him, and I hope he has a wonderful birthday. If you're inclined to give him a gift, I bet he would appreciate something like a Domino's gift card or something, as uh, I see Domino's frequently at his place, but uh, we've turned to John chapter, that, John chapter 9 this morning. <clears throat> the gospel of John's theme, main theme, purpose, is to demonstrate that Jesus is God. Every gospel has a different theme. Mark is to demonstrate that Jesus was a suffering servant. The book of Matthew is to demonstrate that Jesus is king. Luke is to demonstrate that Christ is the perfect, perfect man. John is different. John is to demonstrate that Jesus is God. And so every facet of this book breathes testimony that Jesus, the Word made flesh, as we learn in chapter 1, as John the Baptist calls Him, the Lamb of God that would come and take uh, away the sins of the world is not a prophet or a good man, but he is God. Chapter 1, we're introduced to Christ and the beginning of Christ's ministry. And then in chapter 2, all the way to chapter 12, we're presented with Christ's earthly ministry, of which John specifically selects seven miraculous signs. All these Miraculous signs are intended to present Christ as God in a unique facet. And so, for example, in John chapter 2, when Jesus turns water into wine, Christ is being demonstrated as God over creation because only God can create water or wine out of water. When, when Jesus heals the nobleman's son from a great distance, he shows that God is, is, he's shown that to be God by performing a miracle over great distance, only God could perform and control health over the next town over. When Jesus walks on water and stills the storm, he shows that he is God over nature. Only God has the power to control creation. And in John chapter 9, where we are today, we're introduced to the sixth miracle, or as John calls them, sign. Sign is to, to display that Jesus is God. And the purpose of this chapter is to display that Jesus is God because He is suffering, uh, excuse me, He is sovereign over suffering. 
Jesus is God because he's sovereign over suffering. And only God can take suffering and pain and hardship and, and it be used for his work and his glory. So only God can take that which is so painful and use it for his name to be lifted up. So we're going to look today at two questions in this chapter. The first question is, how should I view the suffering of my life? The second question is, how does God reveal his works through my suffering? How should I view the suffering in my life? Well, we see this in really the first three verses. The disciples begin by making an incorrect assumption about their hardships in the first two verses. This is what our scripture says for us this morning, beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples are walking in Jerusalem walking with Jesus as they had so often done, and they see a man that had been blind all the way from birth. So the disciples take the opportunity to receive some unique insight from the man who could tell them who, why, why this man was blind, why this man had this di- disability. And the disciples, they're connecting a specific suffering in someone's life to the specific sin in someone's life. And really, this was a question of debatable theology amongst Jewish leaders at the time. For, for example, they often thought that if, if a woman with a baby inside of her would go to a pagan temple and worship, then that baby was also worshiping that pagan god. And so the question is, if that child was born with some sort of deformity or sickness, was it because of the babies worshiping that pagan god, or was it because of the woman worshiping the pagan god? And this was the theology during the Jewish time. And so Jesus, did this guy sin when he was actually in the womb? Or did the parents sin so that it was passed down to him? question is, is this even the right question to ask? We look broadly to Scripture. Biblical theology informs us that it's really not. The Bible teaches that sin, that, that, that um, because of sin, there is hardship. Man's sin in the garden brought death, brought sickness, pain, suffering. Of course, sin has consequences, and that is the very nature of sin. Furthermore, at select moments, the Bible does connect specific physical hardships with specific sin for the individual. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is rebuking the Corinthian believers for coming to the Lord's table with sin in their lives. And the result was that some of them had fallen sick and even died. But this is not the rule that the Bible presents for us. The Bible doesn't teach that because there is a bad circumstance in someone's life, then there must be a specific sin that is causing that bad circumstance. For example, consider 
Job in the Old Testament. Job was a man of strong, godly character. He was extremely wealthy, and Satan goes before God and says, hey, I've been all around the world, God, and Satan was doing what he's doing, and he tempts people, he blinds people from seeing the glories of God, and God says to him, have you considered my servant Job? So God allows Satan to inflict great pain on Job, his wealth, his family, his health, all taken away. His friends come to counsel him, and they talk to him for 35 chapters about how Job must have sinned against God. Job, you must have done something against God for him to do something this severe to you. But then God appears in the whirlwind at the end of the book, and he is challenged by Job to consider his God's greatness and wonder. Job, where were you when, when the deer was born? Job, who else can hold all the, the oceans in his hand? Job, do you know the answer to this or that? Job was silent. But it tells us twice in the book of Job that Job never sinned against God. Or consider 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When Paul received the thorn in the flesh, and Paul received this thorn so he wouldn't uh, become conceited, and, and Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. Or, or even consider Jesus. Jesus did not have the perfect life. Consider Christ, the, obviously the hardships of his life. Death on the cross does not reveal sin with the perfect, in the perfect Lamb of God. And so the bad circumstances in someone's life doesn't necessarily indicate specific sin. And so the disciples ask what they think about this. They have this reasonable question. Who caused the, the man's blindness? Was it the parents or the child? Before we find out what Christ says, I think it's necessary for us to pause and evaluate, evaluate our own theological understanding of pain, suffering, misfortune. Now, I, I, would, I would doubt that you have ever gone to a friend in the hospital and rebuked them <laughs> over the sin in their life. Maybe, maybe there was occasion for that. Maybe there are a few occasions of that taking place. We do not, but we do find shadows of this same teaching in Christianity today in America. That the Jews interpreted all bad circumstances of life as meaning that there was some specific sin against God. And in the same seed thought, there are teachers in Christianity today that teach that my good life circumstances indicate a good spiritual life. This is called the prosperity gospel. And if, if you were to go to Walmart or a Christian bookstore, you would undoubtedly see these books on display. Essentially, they teach that all good circumstances of life are a result of being right with God. You see, they flipped the disciples' thinking. But it's really the same teaching. It's the corrupt theology. It says, if I'm right with God... If I'm walking with God, if I'm, if I'm doing good to my neighbor, then I won't have any problems in my life. 
If, if I'm doing all these good things in my life, then, then God's going to give me a wonderful, prosperous life. They might say that your bank account will be filled. Your house will be large. He's going to bless your business and give you freedom from disease and sickness. This, this theology is ravaging third world countries as as, as preachers go in their private jets, wealthy, and preach this doctrine, this false doctrine, for people hoping for a better life. Oh, this can sound so wonderful to our ears, but it's cancerous to our hearts because it spiritualizes my desire for stuff in the American dream. It would be, it'd be like if you could imagine with me if we were to treat God like a spiritual vending machine. We see God as what we can, He can give us. He makes my life better. So if I want something out of my vending machine, I, my spiritual vending machine, I, I put my coins in. And the currency that God works with are coins of, of, of faith. And so I'm always hoping to have more and more and more faith. Or, or my goodness, more and more and more goodness. And what pops out of the vending machine is, my, is a better life. Or happy circumstances. Or a bigger bank account. Essentially, they teach that my walk with Christ should be motivated by what God can do for me. Whereas our walk with Christ is motivated by what He has done for us. It flips the equation so that it's no longer, oh Jesus, you can do all these wonderful things for me. No, my life, as the Apostle Paul often referred to himself, as James referred to himself, as slaves, servants of God, bond slaves. And they said, it's not about what Jesus can do for me, it's what he has done for me. And so that I might serve him. And so often we can get trapped in this same thinking. Let me urge you this morning to, to watch out for this, this prosperity gospel. It's truly an anti-gospel. Now this does not mean that God cannot do incredible things today. This does not mean that we should ask God and, and seek God and, and pray for God to do wonderful things. But if, 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 if my... If my relationship with God means that He must give me great things, then I have devalued our great God to something other than the gospel and the cross. And so the disciples, they ask Him this question, filled with an assumption, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he, may be, that he was born blind? How does Jesus respond? Verse 3, he says this, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is absolutely different than what the disciples were thinking. The suffering is actually intended to display God at work. This man was born blind. The intention is for, in order that for the very distinct purpose that the works of God might be displayed in him. He had never seen 
the blue skies or watched a bustling city with people coming and going or seen the birds fly. He had never seen his own mother's face. He had lost out on opportunities. He had lived the disadvantaged life. How can God use this for his glory? How can it be used for the works of God? How can God take hardship and turn it to something for His glory? In fact, only God can take suffering, hardship, and pain and use it for something good and glorious in His name. And this is really hard to grapple with, isn't it? This is very hard to grapple with. Because we struggle with this because we begin to put our own hardships and our own struggles and our own pains and our own sufferings into this passage, and the heartache is felt. We begin to think, oh, this did not happen by chance, but this was intentional. This did not happen by accident, but it was full of purpose. You begin to think this did not happen outside of God's watchful eye, but was actually ordained by Him think this did not happen to shame that man, but it actually was used so that this man could bring great glory to God. God, this was intentional, for, full of purpose, ordained by you, and you did this to display your glory. But Jesus, how do you receive this, this glory? How is your, are your works revealed in my pain? How do you receive glory in my disappointment? Well, the rest of the chapter actually answers that for us. And so, we have looked at how should I view the suffering as my life, and we view it as it coming from our God. We view it as actually an opportunity for God to be glorified, God displayed. But really now it comes, okay, well then, I have this pain, this suffering, this hurt. How does God reveal His works through suffering? And really this, this might be the most surprising answer of all. But let's begin, continue reading in verse, uh, verse 4 all the way to verse 7. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Shalom which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. After Jesus had given this incredible perspective on this man's blindness, that this man was born blind for the works of God to be displayed, Jesus actually defines for us what he means when he talks about the works of God. We just see the the man was just healed and we might assume, oh, the works of God was that he was healed. Well, hold on. Let's look a little bit closer at verse 4 and 5. 
We see this. We must work the work of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work as long as I am in the world. I am the light of the world. Jesus says we must work the work of him who sent me. Who sent, who sent Jesus? Well, God sent Jesus. And what was the very specific work that God sent Jesus to do? Jesus' specific work was to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus is emphasizing his purpose for earthly ministry. There will be a time when no one will be able to work, do the work of God, give the gospel. No one will be able to accomplish the purpose for which Christ came. But while Christ is on earth, the mission is to teach about the Messiah that many will believe. That is the work of God. That is why this man was healed. This, this is, uh, it is, um, that is why the man was given sight. So that when he began to speak of how he could now see to other people, he would point to Jesus and say, he must be God. The works of God being displayed. And so when this man and the rest of the chapter begins to go to this group and this group and this group and this group, how do you see? How do you see? How do you see? This man says, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Well, let's look a little more detail how this plays out. The works of God is displayed in this man as this man just begins to talk about how Jesus changed him. You look in verses uh, 8 to to 12. The neighbors, they begin to notice. And those had seen him actually begging on the corner and say, hey, isn't that that the guy that was born blind? I mean, he's been in our neighborhood for a long time. he's He's been here for a long time, but now he's walking around and he can see. Some agreed, but others thought, no, this is impossible. This truly cannot be him. How could this happen? And so they ask him, are you that man that was on the corner of the street? You're begging, you're blind? And what does the man say? The man called, verse 11, the man called Jesus did this. He told me to go wash in the pool, and I can see. This man just gave truth about what Jesus did in his life. He spoke about the glories and wonder and works of God in his life. The neighbors, they bring him to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they ask, hey, how did you receive sight? Now, they they really didn't care about this guy. They just wanted to catch Christ, bring him to justice for breaking the religious laws. Actually, uh, most likely three, uh, Christ probably broke three laws. He, he, uh, religious laws. He, he healed the man on the Sabbath. He, he made the mud pies. He kneaded the dough, is what they would have said. And then he put it on the, the man's eyes. He would have broken three laws, religious laws. The blind man says, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. They don't believe him. So the Pharisees, they called the parents and said, hey, is this your son? Was, was, he, was, was he actually born blind? And the parents said, yeah, he was born blind. I, I, don't, I, don't, know, I don't know what's going on, but, but actually the parents, uh, you should ask him because he could tell you what happened and, and why he can now see. And, and, and the parents, they're, they're concerned that they were getting tossed out of the 
they were going to get tossed out of the temple. And so what do they say? They say, hey, ask him. He can answer. He's of age. And so the Pharisees, they, they ask the blind man again. And they say, you know, we know this man, Jesus. He made this huge mistake, and he broke the law. You know, he's a sinner. I think we can all agree on that. This Jesus, he's a sinner. But, and the man says, well, if he's a sinner, how do I see? I see, I'm able to see. The Pharisees, they seem to not believe and they say, well, well, how did he open your eyes? And, and eventually the man just clearly articulates, this man must be from God. Because how could anybody else make me see? How could anybody else give a blind man vision? This man must be from God. The works of God displayed to the neighbors, to the parents, to the Pharisees, everybody in the temple, How did this man display the works of God? He just spoke about what Jesus did. He just spoke about what Jesus did in his life. And this, hey, hey, everybody, this is actually how I receive sight. This is how my life has been changed. This is what Jesus did for me. You know, we can learn so much from this today. First of all, we can learn a lesson of of giving the gospel. So often we complicate giving the gospel. And and we, we, we get so much pressure on what do I do? How do I say? What am I supposed to do? The greatest gospel message is just share what Jesus did in your life. That's what this man did. He just said this is what Jesus did. Hey, Jesus has changed me. The trial in your life. Someone asks, hey, how are you doing? You know what? By God's grace, I'm doing amazing. By God's grace, I'm, I'm, I'm getting through. You know, I'm struggling, but I'm thankful for the Scripture that reassures and gives comfort. I'm thankful for Jesus because I know this trial actually had a distinct purpose to display the works of God. He might never fix this. He might never resolve my disappointment. He might never resolve my suffering. But I know Jesus will display the works of God through this hardship. So you use it for evangelism to describe people that say, how how are you going through this? you just begin to talk about Jesus. You begin to have an answer for how we go through suffering and hardships. I heard once best, either you're about to go into trial, you're in the midst of a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. (laughs) Where are you? Oh, we know that this trial, the trial you go through, the trial I go through is not an accident of our almighty good God, but it is sovereignly planned so that he might receive glory and you and I might articulate the works of God to others. You know, I I was speaking to a church member on Friday about what I was going to speak on today. He immediately related with the topic as as they have a perceived hardship in their life. 
And he immediately said, God has used this in, in more ways than I could even tell you. He began to list just the works of God in their life. I've talked with others of you, and the same conversation comes out. How, how do you do this? How are you doing? Oh, God, let me tell you how God is working. You know, I, I, God is working. And only God can take something. Only God can take your pain, your hurt, my disappointment, and use it for somehow for God to display His works so that He will receive glory. Only God can, can redeem suffering for Him to receive glory. And that's what He does. Jesus is God because he is sovereign over the suffering and hardships of our life. You know, this man was not just physically blind since birth, but he was spiritually blind. We learn in verse 38, he was thrown out of the temple in verse 34, and he was rejected by the, the, by the religious leaders of the day because he was articulating truth about Christ. I mean, think about it. This was hard for this man. He was mocked. This was not easy for him, but he just kept on giving truth. This is what Jesus did. And Jesus heard that he had been cast out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he? Sit, that I might believe in him. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And, Jesus, and, and he said, Lord, I believe. You know, there might be some of you today that you have never believed on the name of Jesus. You, you've never heard that Jesus is God and he walked this earth for, for 33 years. He did public ministry for, for three and a half years. And then after those three and a half years, he was, he was slain on the cross for your sins and mine so that we might have a way to have a relationship with God. That is why God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, so that we could have a relationship with Him. And maybe you're here today and you say, Ben, what, what's standing in my way to have a right relationship with God? Well, it's believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, confessing your sins before Him and calling out. You can do that today. It's, it's admitting the reality that we've all sinned. We've all come short of, 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 of God's glory. It's believing in His name. And it's confessing with our hearts that he is, he is the Lord. If you are interested in having a conversation, I would love to talk with you about how you can know Christ as your personal Savior. How you can have forgiveness of your sins and how you can know this incredible Savior so that when you are going through suffering and hardship, you know God will use it for His glory and His work. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that You will be with us as we have met and we have looked at the Word. We have looked at Your Son who has taught us about 
suffering and hardship that it might be used for your glory and your honor and your praise. I pray that you'd be with the believers here this morning that as they hear your words that they would grapple with the reality that you are sovereign. And so that we must, we must trust you have called us as your believers to, to bear your cross, live the gospel life. I pray that we might do that. Lord, I, I pray that you would be with those, that maybe there's some here today that don't know you as their personal Savior, that they might come to know the sweet relationship they can have with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would use your word in this group this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask you, as you're able, would you stand? Let's affirm these truths in song as we sing Chosen.